second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 9. I will read verses 17 through 21. Hear the word of God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very, re- for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would be present in the proclamation of your word. We pray that you would speak to us this day what it is that we need to hear. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to warn you right up front that this is the longest sermon I've ever written, and I cut out about two-thirds of it. All right? Just saying. Okay. It's true, Sam. And I I sent it to you at 9.30 last night. So, So the question is, does God choose who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Or does God leave that choice to us? Does God decide before the foundation of the world... Who will be numbered among the holy and the blameless in his sight? Or does God desire that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Does God extend an offer of salvation to all who will believe? Does God predestine individuals to heaven or to hell? Or does God give us free will? Among evangelical Christians, predestination is a hotly debated topic. And by evangelical, I simply mean Christians who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Christians who believe that the Bible is the only authority in matters of faith and religious practice. Among evangelical Christians, predestination is a hotly debated topic. Predestination isn't a debate between conservative and liberal Christians. And that's because liberal Christianity long ago abandoned the idea of hell. And more recently, they have allegorized the idea of heaven. And so the predestination question doesn't mean so much to them. They've moved on to other things. Predestination isn't a debate between orthodox and heterodox Christians. At least if we understand orthodoxy as that which was summed up in the first four ecumenical councils up through the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. At those councils, predestination was not debated. Mostly the early saints in the church were trying to wrap their minds around the mystery of the Trinity. And, believe it or not, predestination is not a debate between Reformed churches and the Roman Catholic Church. We disagree with our Catholic brothers and sisters on a number of points, but on this doctrine we we agree. So, as it turns out, the debate over predestination is a family quarrel within the world of evangelical Christians. 
Some people don't want to talk about or preach about this topic because it reveals divisions within the Christian family and it's also a rather complicated matter. Heavyweight philosophers like Immanuel Kant called it an antinomy, an unresolvable paradox. Plus, if you come out on the side of this big question that I come out on, it's a rather humbling doctrine for humankind. So there are a whole bunch of reasons to not talk about the doctrine of predestination. As a kid growing up in Missouri, we had plenty of schoolyard debates about predestination. We knew that Presbyterians believed in predestination, but that wasn't much of an endorsement because we also knew that the Presbyterians didn't go to church on Sunday evening the way that we Baptists did. We called them the little dabble do-you Christians. And in our more magnanimous moments, we were willing to admit that while some of them might make it to heaven, it would be just by the skin of their teeth. I was more than 30 years old before I heard my first sermon on predestination. It was a Belfield Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh. That's the church where my daughter Rosie and my son Calvin were baptized. It is the church where I came back to faith. And it is the church, it is a church that recently joined the evangelical Presbyterian church. And so we are again sister congregations. The preacher was the Reverend Dr. Lou Mitchell. He had his Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, so you knew that he was a card-carrying evangelical. And he had his doctorate in church history from Harvard University, so you knew he was no dummy. For me, at that point in my faith journey, Lou Mitchell was a godsend, a powerful combination of head and heart, of authentic Bible-believing faith that was lived out day to day, and a well-educated mind that wasn't afraid to raise the hard questions. When we first arrived at Belfield, Lou was preaching his way through the book of Romans. And you can't preach through Romans without, at some point, coming upon the doctrine of predestination, if for no other reason than that the word predestined shows up in this book, as does the word chosen as do the words elect and election, four terms which are key to the doctrine of predestination. So Lou Mitchell preached the first sermon that I had ever heard about predestination, at least the first sermon from the point of view of someone who supported the doctrine. And Lou's presentation of this doctrine surprised me because for him it was a doctrine of great comfort and assurance rather than a doctrine of fear and loathing. Let me see if I can sketch out this doctrine in the simplest form. Recognizing that we at HVPC come from many different church backgrounds. Only a few of us had parents who read us the Westminster Larger Catechism as a bedtime story. The doctrine of predestination, or the doctrine of election, as we sometimes call it, says that God, for his own good reasons chose or elected angels and people even before he created them to be destined either for heaven or for hell, either for glory or for destruction. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 17, reads this way. What are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy decisions 
from the purposes of his will. By them, from all eternity and for his own glory, he has unchangeably foreordained everything that happens in time, particularly those things that involve angels or human beings. The idea is actually very simple. God is God. He is sovereign. He's without competition. He's without equal. What he says goes simply because he says it. God created the world. He created it according to his intention and his design. He created it out of nothing. He created it to show his glory and he created it good. Before God created the world, there was no world. Before God created the world, there was only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God was timeless and complete and sufficient unto himself. That's the biblical picture of God. Now, there have been human alternatives to this picture. One is Manichaeanism, which imagines that there are two equal and opposed forces in the universe. One light and one dark, one good and one evil. George Lucas presented a modern form of Manichaeanism in his Star Wars theology with the light side and the dark side of the force, not a biblical view. St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century, was a Manichaean before he became a Christian. As a Manichaean, he saw the universe as a struggle between two equal and opposed forces. But when he became a Christian... He became the first Roman Catholic theologian to fully articulate the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, largely based on his reading of the book of Romans. And then the Protestant Reformation came along, we're remembering that today, came along in the 16th century. And those reformers looked back to Augustine to understand the doctrine of election. Martin Luther, who precipitated the Reformation, was, after all, an Augustinian monk. Deism is another view that's contrary to the biblical view. This comes a lot later than Manichaeanism. uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, as were many people during the so-called Enlightenment. Deism says that God created the world, but after he created, he left it to run on its own. God is the clockmaker who winds the clock and then leaves the room and people can do whatever they want because God's not in control. But the biblical view is that God is both the creator and the governor of the universe. He is the sovereign king and nothing happens in this world without his say-so. God's governance of the universe we call providence. Providence is the way God orchestrates, arranges events to produce the results that he wants. When we read in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. That's providence. That's God actively involved in the details of life, directing and guiding them according to his purpose. We believe that It was God's providence which preserved the children of Israel while they were in slavery in Egypt. We believe that it was God's providence which brought them up out of Egypt into a land of their own. We believe it is God's providence that accounts for you sitting here today. We believe that you're here for a divine purpose. As biblical Christians, we don't believe in chance or fate 
or luck or accidents. We believe that God has the whole world in his hands and that he governs that world with wisdom and with love for his glory and for his eternal purposes. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says, he has unchangeably foreordained everything that happens in time. And he gets to do that because he's God. The next question in the larger catechism is the hard one. This is where the rubber hits the road with the doctrine of predestination. It reads this way. What in particular has God decreed about angels and human beings? By an eternal and unchangeable decree which originates merely from his love, exists for the praise of his glorious grace and is to be revealed at the proper time, God has elected some angels for glory and in Christ has chosen some human beings for eternal life along with the means by which this choice will be accomplished. Additionally, in accordance with his sovereign power and the hidden purposes of his own will, by which, as he pleases, he extends or withholds favor, God decided not to include the rest and to foreordain them to be inflicted with dishonor and anger for their sins to the praise of the glory of his justice. In other words, God elects or chooses or predestines some angels and some people to be with him forever out of mercy. And others he leaves to receive the just punishment of their own sins. And it is at this point that the human heart rebels and says, that's not fair. The Apostle Paul recognizes this natural instinct and he gives voice to it in verse 19 where he writes, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? You'll remember that Paul was using as an example of God's election, of God's predestination, the story of Pharaoh and the Exodus. And if you were here last week, you'll recall all of the verses that we read from Exodus where the scripture tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart led to the plagues and led to the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt and resulted in the drowning of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Our human instinct, perhaps our fear of being in the same place as Pharaoh, leads us to ask the question, why didn't God just change Pharaoh's heart? Why could he punish, or how could he punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians if he hadn't given them a chance to change their minds? It's a fair question. A natural question to wonder about. But you could also ask the question, why didn't God just change Judas's heart? Or Pilate's heart? Or the hearts of the crowds that screamed, crucify him, crucify him, so that Jesus' life might have been spared. We can ask those questions. They're natural questions. And those kinds of questions come up again and again in the scriptures. If we ask those questions, we're not the first. In Exodus, God 
chooses to answer that question. He says that he sent the army of the Pharaoh to the bottom of the Red Sea so that the whole world would know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. That was his purpose. In the book of Job, which is filled with similar mysterious suffering, God is a little less patient in his answer. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? In other words, who were you to ask me this question? Paul's answer to this question shows up in verses 20 and 21. Who were you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I realize those are hard words. Words that we don't want to hear. But they are the Word of God. And we need to approach this mystery with great reverence and humility, recognizing that we are not God. We don't understand what God understands, nor are we God's moral superior that we can demand of Him, like a judge sitting in judgment, answers to our questions. The fundamental sin, the sin that is at the root of all other sins, is that we put ourselves in God's place. And we need to be very careful. Now let me shift gears for just a moment. Away from the biblical text and the doctrine of predestination and talk to you briefly about its logical corollary in the realm of philosophy and the natural sciences. At bottom, the argument over the doctrine of predestination is the same as the argument between freedom and determinism. An age-old debate within the realm of philosophy and the natural sciences. Simply put, you and I feel ourselves to be free. We experience internally a sense of freedom. Everyone in this room believes they have a free will and all of our social interactions and all of our laws assume that people have a free will. But the natural sciences tell us that we're composed of matter. And we know that matter is governed by physical laws. And where physics is involved, there is no free will. Science just doesn't work that way. If you jump out a window, you will fall to the ground. That's just how gravity works. Gravity doesn't ask you, would you like to fall today or would you prefer to remain in the air? If you drop sodium into water, it will explode. That's just how the chemical reaction works. When the hydrogen is released, it doesn't ask the nearby oxygen, shall we combust today or would you prefer to remain inert? So if physical objects are determined by natural laws, if physical things can't do other than what is dictated to them by natural laws, how can we as physical creatures be free? And if you say, well, we're physical bodies, but we're attached to a mind. Neurobi- neurobiology, 
will remind you that your mind is nothing more than a bunch of chemical reactions going on inside your cranium. And so the problem remains of freedom and determinism, whether or not we believe in God. It's actually not a new problem. I mentioned Immanuel Kant earlier. He identifies this quandary between freedom and determinism as an irresoluble antinomy, as a genuine paradox. And so we find ourselves in this quandary. Each one of us feels free. Each one of us believes that we're free. And yet, if we're consistent in our scientific thinking, we have to say that we're not free. Kant's answer to this quandary is that both parts of the antinomy are true. We are free. Truly. We are determined. Truly. And I think the same principle applies to the question of freedom of will and predestination. Are we free? Can we be held accountable morally for our actions? The biblical answer is yes. Are we predestined? Does God control all events in the universe? The biblical answer is yes. On the free will side, every time the word of God commands us to do something, it presupposes our capacity to do it. When Jesus said repent, he really expected people to repent. It would be perverse to say repent to someone who could not repent. In the same way, it would be perverse to say, stand up to someone who has no legs. The Bible is full of commandments, and all of them are based on the assumption that we, the listeners, can hear and respond to the command. They're all based on the assumption that we have free will and that we are morally accountable. But, at the same time, in a way that is as mysterious as the felt presence of our own free will in the face of the knowledge that we are physical creatures governed by physical laws, it is also true that God is sovereign and that God governs the universe and that God's will cannot be thwarted by human will. If God wills it, it happens. And there isn't any person or any angel who can stop it. That's also true. So I said back at the beginning of this messy sermon that this debate regarding predestination and election is a debate within the family of evangelical Christians. And I said that because I think it is important for all of us who are born-again Christians, for all of us who look at look to the Bible for answers to honor one another and to respect one another, even if we have differences of opinion about predestination. Those who say yes to predestination and those who say no to predestination both do so for the same reason, because of how they understand Scripture. Those who say yes to predestination take seriously those scriptures which talk about God's sovereign design, about God choosing us before the foundation of the world, about God's purposes never being thwarted. And they're right to take those passages seriously. And those who say no to predestination take seriously those scriptures which call us to action. 
which are predicated on the assumption that we can do what God commands. Like when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden. Like when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. The plain sense of those passages is that we can come and that we can repent and that we can open the door. And that's the invitation. You'll hear every Sunday in a Baptist church, come, repent, open the door. All of which is biblical. But for those of us who think more like Presbyterians, those who, like Lou Mitchell, find the doctrine of predestination to be a comfort and an assurance, we also see the hand of God at work in our coming, in our repenting, in our opening the door. We who affirm the doctrine of election see God at work in our lives before we were ready to respond to his call. As a Presbyterian, I have no hesitation preaching to the whole world, come, repent, open the door, even though I believe that we cannot come, that we cannot repent, and that we cannot open the door until God makes us able to do those things. And I preach that way because we never know when that will happen. We never know whose heart God has been getting ready, and so we keep preaching the same message. Come, repent, open the door. And we know that those who have ears will hear and that those whose hearts have been quickened by the Holy Spirit will respond. In preparing this sermon, I read a whole bunch of articles. I went to the internet, it was a mistake. A whole bunch of articles by sincere Christians who reject the doctrine of predestination and election, who reject the theological system we call Calvinism. I read, what's wrong with Calvinism? I read, the false doctrine of Calvinism. I read, Calvinism critiqued by a former Calvinist. That one was actually pretty good. But my favorite was, why Calvinism makes me cry. I wasn't raised in a Calvinist church, and so I knew many of the article, uh, many of the arguments already. But I thought it was important for me before I stood in front of you to make a defense of this doctrine to properly understand the serious arguments made by earnest Christians. Maybe in an adult Sunday school class we can go over some of this material. It's too much for a single sermon that's already too long. But this morning I want to close just by taking a stab at why the doctrine of predestination is a comfort to some of us. And it comes down to two things. First, if my salvation depends on God choosing me in His free and sovereign grace, I stand a better chance of seeing heaven than if my salvation depends upon me and my unpredictable will, my changing attitudes, my vacillating opinions choosing God. 
If my salvation depends on God's faithfulness toward me rather than my faithfulness toward Him, then I stand a better chance of seeing heaven. And second, if you've been a scoundrel, if you've had a cold and hard heart toward God, if you have run from God rather than to God, if you have willfully rejected God time and again, and then one day woke up as from a stupor to find that your heart and your mind have changed, if that's ever happened to you as it's happened to me, well, never in a million years will you think that your conversion had something to do with an exercise of your free will. My conversion to Christ was not free. I did not sit down one day and analyze the data and say to myself, Hey, you know, I think this gospel stuff makes sense. I think I'm going to go follow Jesus. That was not my experience. Now, maybe your experience was different. But for some of us, maybe those of us for whom the doctrine of election makes sense, for some of us, Conversion by an exercise of our free will just doesn't line up with our experience. And so the only option left open to us is believing in a God who in His sovereign grace gives us a gift that falls out of heaven on top of us, undeserved, unexpected, like a ton of gold bricks. And that's precisely what I hear when Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now I don't know where each one of you stands on this doctrine of election. And I do know that we in this congregation come from a wide variety of church backgrounds and a wide variety of opinions are represented here in the pews this morning. And it's one of the reasons that I like this place. I don't care if you follow Calvin, even though I have my John Calvin bobblehead up here, even though I named my son after the Swiss reformer. But what I do care about is whether or not you follow Christ. Whether or not you have repented of your sin, whether or not you have come to Christ, whether or not you have opened your heart to Him and received Him as Lord, I do care about that. I believe Calvin was a great man of God. But he's not our Savior. Jesus is. In Romans 10.9, we'll get there in a few weeks. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what I believe. That's what counts. 
And if you've never done that before, I invite you to do that this morning. Let us pray. Father God, you are great and glorious and even what little we understand of you boggles our minds and stretches us. Lord, I pray that we would be comfortable in the presence of the many mysteries that surround you. I pray that our trust would not be in our own reason, but would be in your revelation. And Lord, I thank you for your robust revelation in Scripture. I thank you for your robust calls to repentance and to faith in Christ. I thank you for your robust reminders that you are in charge and you're God and we're not. Lord God, we pray this day that we would know you and love you and cling to you and have faith in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in unmistakable and irresistible ways. I pray this for our salvation and I pray it for your glory. For you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.